get involved in something that you're passionate about. You know, you'll drive harder, you'll work harder, you'll be, you'll, so you'll be more successful, you'll be happier, you'll help make the people around you feel that their life has meaning and they're doing something that matters. It's an incredible motivator. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Bulwark's Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm sitting here this afternoon in Denver, Colorado, getting ready to launch the OGGN Happy Hour with my guest, Chris Wright, Chief Executive Officer of Liberty Oilfield Services. How are you, man? I'm thrilled to be here. Thrilled to be here. And thank you so much for sponsoring this and helping us out and helping us launch a new happy hour. It's been tremendous. Everyone's been wonderful. We love gatherings of humans, social events, and of course, lubricated with beer and wine. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of hard to say no. I know, right? All right. Before getting into it, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments to leave a review on iTunes and I'll read it on the air. Chris, let's talk about how you got started in oil and gas. Blind luck, like a lot of things in my life. Blind luck. I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. Uh After being an undergrad in physics and mechanical engineering, I was studying electrical engineering. No intention whatsoever to go into the oil and gas business, although I had been working in energy. And a missed paycheck at UC Berkeley kind of put me in a bind, and I called a gal up I'd met a couple years before, now my longtime wife and mother of our children, but she wasn't at the time, and I said, I need a job. And she had had a summer job out in Silicon Valley. So going to school at Berkeley in Silicon Valley, you don't think is the place you get into the oil and gas business. But no. that's how I got into the oil and gas business. Wow. Just blind luck. Blind luck. So let's let's talk about from then on to now. Let's discuss this let's discuss your journey. All right. My journey. So, you know, you know, as a, as a kid, I had an experience with a homeless person, actually about three blocks from where we are right now. The only time in my life I went to my dad's office, we parked outside, we walked two blocks to his office, and I saw for the first time a homeless person on the street. I knew nothing about mental illness or substance abuse or anything. All I saw as a 12-year-old kid was, oh my gosh, there's someone without a roof over their head and enough food to eat, and it, it, and it outraged me. And I had just, you know, I grew up in suburban Denver and before that in suburban New Jersey. And this kind of set a lifelong mission of, you know, why was I so lucky and most everyone I knew so lucky? And why were there people still that didn't have their basic needs met? So that started sort of a lifelong passion for originally what causes poverty. Took me years to figure out I was asking the wrong question. Ah. It's, It's what lifts people out of poverty, not what causes poverty. That's the relevant question. But I knew, and then there was sort of a mania at the time in the in the in the late seventies. You know, when I was in high school, late seventies, early eighties, right. was they were running out of everything, not just oil and gas, but farmland and materials and metals, and you know, and the you know industrial civilization was going to collapse. And so my brother and I were mountain climbers. I wanted to see the world, and I wanted other people to be lucky that weren't born like I was. Right. So those things sort of coalesced into I better work in energy. You know, that's the enabling thing of growing food and all these other industries. 
So I actually went to college specifically to work on plasma physics and try to solve fusion energy because I saw that if we were running out of all the stuff we knew about, that to me was the most promise, as close to limitless as you can get source of energy. Wow. That's a very profound and very impactful thing to to experience as a young child and then live through that and and try to figure things out for yourself. I mean, I, I deal this with this with my kids and they don't they they don't know what the, they want to do ultimately. But it seems like you figured things out pretty quick. Well, I didn't do that, but 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 yeah, I mean, I was always thinking about that. I ask kids all the time now, what are you going to be when you grow up and all that? And of course you don't know when you're right. that age, you know, every different age you probably could ask me and I'd give you a different answer. But I but un, unlike a lot, I always had an answer. You know, most of them were wrong but I had an answer. And so as a kid, I was very interested in science. I was good at math and I like science and you know, I love to stare at the sky and understand the stars. That's how I got interested in fusion. I'm like, if these things are, are tens to hundreds to millions of trillions of miles away, how can I see it with my eye? You know, that is, that's one badass candle. Right. And so as a technical guy, right, it's, it's, I say I'm a science geek turned tech nerd, by looking at stars and understanding, you know, where does this in immense light, power, energy come from? And it's it's fusion. It's just high pressure and temperature squishing two helium hydrogen atoms together to make a helium atom, and it releases a lot of energy. So to me, fusion sort of combined my love of science and with a purpose. You know, everyone wants a purpose, you know? So my purpose at that time was bringing energy to the world and I got to combine my nerdy interest in physics or astrophysics, yeah. you know, together. So, hey, that worked. Right. So it sounds like you've been pretty lucky, but what are some challenges you've had to go through, through all of this? You know, I mean, the biggest challenge that may, all, that may have also enabled my great opportunities in life, well, my dad was an alcoholic before I was born and mm -hmm. to this day, so my entire life. I'm the youngest of four kids. We were all in high school together. We're super close in age. I've got fantastic siblings and just a truly saintly mother. So it isn't like I had some terrible upbringing. Right. But I was impacted by that, right? You know, as a kid, the only one making money in our house, you know, was relatively selfish and was a functioning alcoholic. He went to work, but, you know, he came home and got drunk every night. So, and my, you know, whether I could buy a skateboard or play tennis or do the things that we all wanted to do kind of depended upon his mood or interest in that thing. And I didn't like that. So it drove me to want to work and make money and be independent very young. You know, I was picking weeds at 10 and babysitting later in my 10th year and ultimately mowing lawns as soon as old enough to, you know, maybe 12 or 13 to run a, you know, a gas powered mower and, you know, so I, I was driven, as really were my siblings too. We, I was driven at a very young age to make money so that if I wanted to skateboard and dad hated skateboards, I'd buy my own skateboard. And that drive for independence certainly motivated me. You know, it, 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 you know, maybe I worked a little harder than a natural screw off that I am would have. That's true. Yeah, I can see that. So tell me about your role here at Liberty. So I've been an entrepreneur, right? So, my, right. so the dream, well, I guess I could do the math, but you know, eight, eight and a half years ago was we decided to start a frat company. And we were in the EMP business. I'd been in the technology business and sort of related businesses to frack. 
And, you know, it was really a mission. It was like, well, it's starting business plan, which has never changed, was we're going to build the best damn frack company, period. And so- I like that. With that very simple mission, I'm like, whether we're big or small, our times are good, or times are terrible, or, you know, everywhere in between, doesn't matter. We have one objective. We're going to build a differential business doing one thing, frack. And then, oh, look, every- objective or dream in life just comes down to humans, right? So yeah. that's that's a business model I learned when I was 18. If you get the best people on your team and they're aligned and motivated, you can do special stuff. That's awesome. So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what, it, what would it be based off of your experience? It's to bring a passion or a cause to your work. Now, maybe you can't do that in, in every job, and, and I don't want to confuse it with the advice I think that people I hear a lot now, well, find what you love and go do that. Well, you know. Yeah, it sounds I very lo- cliche. I love, I love skateboarding, you know, or, yeah. you know, I love traveling the world. You know, we're a rich world. So a lot yeah. of people go do things that they love to do, but maybe they aren't the greatest professions. They aren't the most impactful things. So to me, it's, I would say, as far as I know, you only live once. So find something that you believe your efforts are going to make the world a better place. Because, man, that, that's a strong motivator. And then if you find that, whatever industry or place that is, and you believe what you're doing is not just furthering your career, but you're making the world a better place. And I think an enormous amount of businesses, you know, most all do this. So yeah. it's, it's not like it's you got to find this needle in a haystack. But just... Get involved in something that you're passionate about. You know, you'll drive harder, you'll work harder, you'll be, you'll, so you'll be more successful, you'll be happier, you'll help make the people around you feel that their life has meaning and they're doing something that matters. It's an incredible motivator. It really is. And this is exactly why I have a podcast. Motivation, driven by other people and my passion for helping other people. Exactly. It's exactly the same thing, right? You're finding ideas and motivational things and you're bringing this message to people all over. You're impacting their lives, right? I certainly hope so. drives you, right? (laughs) I certainly hope so. What book influenced you the most and why? I've always been interested in history. You know, what was, you know, you kind of look around and you think you know what our world's like today, but to me, what was it like before? And so look, I I didn't pre-prep on this, so I'm going to shoot from the hip here, but I know I read a book probably in junior high, called One Week of Danger. You know, it was probably an 80-page little book, and it was about early old colonial settling in the United States and surviving in the woods and, and threats. And maybe that kindled my interest in history. What were things like before that, before then? I had this, then I had this, you know, you know, soon after that, maybe this quest for poverty. So to me, reading history, reading about economic development, Milton Friedman, hugely influential to me. Winston Churchill. Yes. Thomas Sowell, writing on cultural history and economic development. Adam Smith, you know, I read him maybe later, but not just Wealth of Nations. Basically, how does bottom-up organization work compared to top-down? Yeah. Why was bottom-up a new arrival in the last couple centuries, and why is it so awesomely better? Probably no one really laid that out better than Adam Smith, but his previous book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, you know, why do people act well to someone they may never see again, right? You know, why, why are humans naturally good? Not all, not always, but why do they do that? So I would say both of Adam Smith's books were just super influential in the way I looked and thought about the world and the challenge questions I wanted to answer. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, that 
history is important because you learn from wise people learn from other people's mistakes versus their own. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm on board with that. Totally. What's your most used business tool being a tech geek? Most used business tool is what we're doing right now. Your mouth is talking a hundred percent. You know, we got to motivate people to want to join team Liberty and keep them fired up going. Got to get our customers fired up our you know, bank or suppliers, So to me, ultimately, business is about getting humans to cooperate together to do things better than they did last month. So human interaction, human cooperation is, I would say, by far my best best and maybe only business tool. Gotcha. Excellent answer. Who would you say is your most respected competitor? So we're in the frack business. Yeah. Lots, lots of companies there and all that. I'd say of the people in our industry that I respect the most, a company called ProPetro. Based, yeah. based out of Midland, Texas, you know, humble headquarters there. They built a great business. I don't know a ton of people in the company. I know their CEO and he's just a straight shooting, honest, humble guy who wants to do the right thing. Those so, are my favorite kinds of people. Yeah, 100%. So I've always personally liked the guy, but I've not been shocked by the success of the business they built. Awesome. What's your most important lesson learned? Probably back, back to the... Back to the human thing. You know, I had an internship when I was 18 years old and, you know, at, at Honeywell, a great company. You yeah. Know, when I was a, you know, it was the first time I'd worked indoors. I loved it. You know, it was a nine person team. It's right when laser printers were coming out. There was a competing, oh, wow. there was a competing print technology called thermal printers. I didn't know I was unlucky, but probably the last time I was unlucky in my life, I got stuck on the thermal printer team. I thought I was lucky as hell. And nine of us worked very hard on building this printer. And the lesson I got out of that was there were two guys who I've not kept in touch with, but Doug Beatty and Mike McNitt, who worked on this team, like late 20s engineers. And the two of them did 75% what was in the final printer. You know, they were just young go-getters. And, you know, the, the, the maybe the five more did the other 25%. And, and one and arguably two, just nothing was different in the final product with their efforts. So to me, I just saw that, you know, all people are different, you know, but people that are highly motivated and passionate to move the ball forward are just massively more valuable on a team. And so that's when I decided to be an entrepreneur was that summer. And I have not worked for a company with more than 10 employees. I didn't start since I was 18. And it was with that very, I was super naive and I'm still naive, but it was that very simple business model get great people who are passionate, love what they do. They'll work just as hard, whether someone's looking or no one's looking and that they're nice and you can get along with them and they'll be good in a team. And so, man, I've, I've made a million mistakes, but that central business model hasn't changed. And I'd say, you know, whatever success I've had in my life, it's entirely because I've, I've, I've surrounded myself with great people who care about what they do. And that's actually something I've found to be very consistent with the people I've interviewed on the show is they have surrounded themselves by amazing people that get the job done and are just as passionate as they are. So great story. Why is your role now important to the future of oil and gas? I don't know if my role is important to the future of oil and gas, but I would say our company or the broader ecosystem is, look, oil and gas over the last, when oil and gas business started, since it started less than 200 years ago, human life expectancy has doubled. 
Extreme poverty went from over, extreme poverty meaning less than $2 a day in today's money. Think about that. That was 90% of humanity wow. 200 years ago, right? People were smaller because everyone was at some level of starvation, right. malnourished. Today, there's still 9% of humanity, which is insanely too many people, 700 million people living on less than $200 a day. But that incredible rise of poverty and the expanding life expectancy, I believe, is driven by two things. One was the growth in human liberty, right? This bottom-up organization that Adam Smith talked about in Wealth of Nations, not everything before was top-down, the government or the chief or the emperor or the tribe's approval to do anything. But once you freed people, we not only got wealthier and lived longer, we ended slavery, women got the right to vote and got essentially full and equal citizenship. All those are amazingly recent things. It is unbelievable the way the world used to work. But I think this growth of human liberty and the arrival of cheap, abundant energy just changed the game. And both of those ideas are under attack today. People yeah. really want to move back to top-down control. Well, if the government owns things and decides who can do what, that'll be fairer and better. You know, we tried that throughout all of human history, you know, and it didn't go well. And so, and oil and gas, you know, the resources that enable every other industry and that help people lift out of poverty and pursue their lives, both of those are, are under serious attack today. Yeah. So th that concerns me, and that's probably the main reason I spend some of my time traveling around and talking and speaking and engaging with people. Excellent. What's your favorite podcast? I know you've been on a bunch, but what's your favorite one? And it doesn't have to be this one. It, well, it is. <laughs> this, 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 this is my favorite podcast, and I want, I want to see it grow. I want to see it expand and, and engage more humans in a dialogue. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate that. You got any good stories for me? Wow, good story. Yeah, so two months ago, my daughter graduated from college, and we started a family tradition, well, just four years ago when she graduated from high school, that at every graduation, I've got two kids, a daughter, and two years later, a son, that would do a family trip. You know, we went to Japan for a week when my daughter graduated from high school. We went to the Galapagos when my son graduated from high school. And then my daughter graduates from college just two months ago. Before that, my wife and I were mountain climbers and backcountry skiers. My son's a backcountry skier, ice climber, incredible rock climber. So my daughter a few years ago said, you know, I don't approve of my family's lifestyle. You know, she thinks the three of us are a little bit nuts. <laughs> and, um, but she's transformed quite a bit recently. So she graduates from, from college and where, 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 she where, where do you want to go? Elon in North Carolina. Oh, And what does she pick? I want to go climb Kilimanjaro, highest mountain in Africa, 19 and a half thousand feet tall. You start from about 6,000 vertical feet. That's what she picks, you know, not, not her nutty family. That's what she picks. <laughs> We go climb, we go to Kilimanjaro, fantastic family trip, just the four of us and our daughter's boyfriend. And she gets sick at the start of the climb, powers through that. She's struggling. She's getting well. Altitude she, sickness? No, first just sickness, you know, like some kind of, you know, fever or bug or right. whatever. But man, she doesn't slow her down. She's going on. Then, and she doesn't take Diamox, which my, my wife and I don't either because they didn't have it when we were kids. But it's a great, you know, drug that allows your body to flush out liquids. So okay. it avoids altitude sickness in okay. a huge amount of cases. But she doesn't, she doesn't take it. And, and in, and in all of my, my time in mountains, it's the first time I saw someone get serious high altitude pulmonary edema, which is your lungs are filling with water and it's a bad thing. Oh my gosh. And yeah. it can come on pretty quick. Our daughter's blood oxygen content, you know, it's supposed to be a hundred percent, right? If you're right. fully oxygenated, your blood, it dropped to 51%. We're hours before leaving for the summit of the mountain 
And we head down the mountain. My wife and son and my daughter's boyfriend, they go to the top of Kilimanjaro. Ten hours later, they're 19,500 feet. My daughter and I, through the night, are walking down, descending from 15,500 down to 12,000. The next morning, we go all the way down to 6,000 feet. And But that night, when we sleep, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, down at 12,000 feet, this is pretty traumatic. Someone who didn't approve of her family's lifestyle. And, and, and her words to me were, Dad, we got to come back. When are we coming back? So, and we're going back next October. Oh, but um, so she powered through it and it just, yeah, I think build confidence, build whatever. Then we go to into rural Africa, out to the West to go on safari. Uh We visit the Maasai, kind of a famous tribe. There's 150 tribes in Tanzania, Mm -hmm. but the Maasai is one of the most famous, right? They they live on cow's blood and cow milk and they're tall and beautiful and they make great jewelry. We go to a Maasai village and we go inside of a Maasai hut, which is just thatch, very thick grass thatch huts. Right. Walls are, you know, probably a foot thick to protect from the wind and dust. So inside, very small. And what do they have burning in the middle of the day? You know, a small wood fire that burns 24 hours a day. It's the only source of light inside the hut. It's the only source of heat when it's cold at night. It's the only way to cook food. 24 hours a day in that hut, there is a fire burning, which means it's a smoky hut. So we see it firsthand with this family, but two to three billion people in the world today still live cooking traditional fuels this way. That particulate matter from that smoke kills four million people a year. So this is by far the biggest killer there is out there and that we can address. My gosh. Right? So what's what's the solution in Tanzania? Well, there's now eight businesses that sell LPG, liquid petroleum gas. So think the propane for your barbecue. It's got a little butane mixed in. It's cheaper. You don't have to separate it as as cleanly. But LPG is the liberator of poor people to have clean air, cheaper and actually cleaner, and they don't have to deforest and gather wood or dung. Deforestation is is very common in poor areas because that's their source of energy, same as our ancestors' trees. But you bring these little canisters of liquid petroleum gas into the house. In, in urban Tanzania, it's actually cheaper now than wood and charcoal. But traditionally, you know, people have lived one way for generations. So there's an effort to change that over. But we can save millions of lives. Think of the kids growing up constantly in a smoke-filled hut. Women spend over an hour a day gathering fuel for the fire every single day. And without, with just that as your source of energy, it's also very hard to get clean water, right? Yeah. You don't have a pump to get groundwater. Right. So women also spend about an hour a day walking to gather water. Generally, these are your separate trips. Gather fuel, gather water, you know, to get by in survival. But a little bit of clean, higher energy dense, clean burning LPG is just absolutely a game changer. China has transformed just in the last 15 years, 200 million people from solid biofuels to LPG. They still have 400 million on solid biofuels. And in Tanzania, it's the majority of the country. So to me, one of the passions, again, about our industry is the surging shale revolution has made the United States by far and away the world's biggest exporter of liquid petroleum gas right. and liquefied natural gas, which right. is you know just chilled. LPG is, is a liquid at room temperature. So the export of that has driven down the price and made it more in reach of the people like the Maasai we visited in Tanzania. Wow, what so, a great story. That's excellent. That's great. 
Chris, thank you so much for coming on. People want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Liberty. How can they go about doing that? LibertyFrack.com. You know, there's a bunch of talks and presentations on our website. You can read about our business. And my email is just Chris.Wright at LibertyFrack.com. All right. We'll Very put easy the, to find. Yeah, we'll put those links in the show notes for everybody if they want to reach out to you. And let's let's get out of here. I mean, we got some drinks to intake. And thank you again for hosting the happy hour. And that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Thanks, Paige. Down to happy hour. Now here's events on deck. Hey, guys, this is Alex. And here are the events on deck for September 2019. We are bringing oil and gas tech podcast to the Internet of Things conference in Houston, Texas on September 16th through 17th. Joining us will be CEO Marty Sprinson of Vantique. You can register online at iotandoilandgas.com. The Midstream Networking Golf Tournament will be held on September 6, 2019 in Cypress, Texas, and the dress, of course, is golf attire. The NOV Sporting Clays Tournament will be on September 20, 2019 in Katy, Texas. Dress is casual. The Blockchain and Oil and Gas Conference is in Houston, Texas on September 18th through 19th, and the dress is business casual. That's all for September. Hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Bulwark's Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.